Holy Spirit sensitivity, and that happens every week here. If you're if you're not part of us and able to be, um, we want you to join us some Sunday. We'll make room for you. It's good. And um, I uh, <clears throat> maybe you're thinking, maybe you have thought, I wish I was there. And um, I get that from people. Some folks have written me from different places in our country and outside the country uh, saying, I wish I could be there. And I kind of know by geography that it would be a stretch for them to get on a plane every Saturday and show up on Sunday. But still, it's, uh, it's a privilege to be together. And, um, and uh, it, it, um, maybe, maybe that, that expression, I wish I was there, um, fits you too. It, uh, we've, all, we've all actually heard of situations where we weren't there, but we wish we were. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's like... Um, you, you, there's, there's just, we couldn't witness it, but we heard about it, and it was like, wow. Um, I, I thought of uh, a couple of those uh, this week in anticipating this message, uh, that my Bible's open to Acts 4. If you're not there yet, that's where we're going to land in a minute. But um, to get you kind of connected to it, uh, I, I, for some reason, found my way to a visit that my uh, oldest daughter, Carrie Ann, who's a flight attendant, she and I uh, uh, went on a trip to Honolulu. And um, on that island, there's, the, of course, the U.S. Arizona and Pearl Harbor is nearby. And so we, uh, not really prepared for what we would encounter, we went there. And, um, and it was very moving, very significant. And, and they had displays for all sorts of uh, features that were relevant to uh, the 40s and what happened uh, to this country. And um, one that really stood out, and it still does, is when um, the, uh, aboard the USS Missouri, uh, D- General Douglas MacArthur received the unconditional signed surrender of Japan uh, on September 2nd, 1945. And um, it was just... it. I got chills. I could show you. I'd take my shirt off, but that would be a mess. But, um, you know, it was, the, it was in Tokyo Bay, and it was that day, and I, I looked at it and just sort of transported in time and imagined myself being there. I remember thinking, I wish I was there, this, this, this hard-fought um, moment that happened, and World War II ended. I shared that with somebody recently, and they, and they, they said, well, where were you? <laughs> really? I mean, I was only two months old, okay? Just kidding, just kidding. Um, and then here's another one. It's, it's a lighter one. It's a, it's a fun one. When Damian Lillard, uh, the local star for... Uh, NBA's uh, Portland Trailblazers uh, hit a buzzer beater to send Houston, uh, the Houston Oilers, the other Houston team, right? Um, But the Rockets packing on that day, and uh, the Blazers advanced to the second round of of, uh, the playoffs. And and Lillard hit that buzzer beater, no time left, and it was a three-pointer, of course. It was from downtown, and they won... And the Moda Center blew up. I think it was called the 
Rose Garden at that time. And this I do know, my son was there. He was just, he was sitting on the floor because he worked for the Blazers and was a team attendant for the visiting team, and which was an interesting uh, locker room after the game. But anyway, uh, he was there, and you can see him if you were to play the video. He leaps to his feet as it, it goes through the net, and the Blazers win. And so that's sort of our little piece of, he, my son was there, but I wasn't. I wish I was there. That's what I'm getting at. And here's a third one that hit me, and it's uh, verse 31 of Acts chapter 4. It's actually a prayer meeting that ended on a day in Jerusalem, and the place where the people gathered to pray was shaken. That puts a little feel to it, doesn't it? We can read the word, you know, they were there, and how does it go at three in the afternoon and all this stuff, and it, it actually says, they prayed, and the place where they were meeting was shaken. But how many of you came from California at some point in your life? Oh, wow. They're taking us over, aren't they? Well, that's right, I'm one of them, but uh, anyway, so here's the deal, uh, and those of you who raised your hands, you know something about earthquakes? Yeah, yeah. Um, and some of you are nervous right now when I mention it, just like move on, Pastor. But here's the deal. When it happens, you there's no mistake. Something bigger than you is going on. I, I remember uh, a big one when Debbie was in Newport Beach at her office building, which was a tower. And um, she worked for IBM there. And... Suddenly the news, I'm reading my Bible, getting ready to travel to Pasadena for school, at uh, uh, grad school at Fuller Seminary, and I'm um, finishing my coffee, and suddenly the newscaster, I remember his name, you're going to go Google this, Kent Shocknick, he, had, he was remembered forever as the newscaster in mid-broadcast, dives under the desk and says, this reporter is going to take duck and take cover. I suggest you do likewise. Whoa. <laughs> like a half hour later, he comes up, you know, kind of thing. I'm exaggerating. But I remember thinking, because it was, I think it was earthquake week. And I remember thinking, wow, that's some theatrics. I mean, they're putting it all together. And, and it lo actually looks like it's shaking, but what? Oh, and it, and it was one of those rolling earthquakes, and it finally made it to our house in Chino Hills, and I ducked and covered at that, at that point. So, um, entertaining stories, but they're not the Bible, so let's move on. Um, here's the deal. In lots of these things, I, um, I, and probably you have your own set of things that you wish you had been there. Um, this prayer meeting was really a big deal. It was um, two chapters away from another very big gathering called Pentecost. And there was this Holy Spirit like hurricane that hit the building. It didn't destroy it. It, it infused the people there. It was this sudden sound like, like a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. I'm reading from Acts 2, and they, 
They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that came and separated and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other languages. And the Spirit enabled them powerfully. I wish I was there. You ever felt that way? I just do. And I wish that that happened here. And I wish that happened, it might be exhausting, every week here. Be cool. It would, it would tell the world, this is for real. Man. Um, so this prayer meeting um, came, back to Acts 4, right after this long thing that we've looked into deeply, the, the, um, the apostles, Peter and John, specifically standing before the religious rulers, and they're known as the Sanhedrin, and it was a knee-knocking nervous moment for them but not with the holy spirit's help they suddenly became this bold courageous crew and it was like wow right after that they go to this prayer meeting in jerusalem and thus this this great triumphant celebration you're free you didn't get like like banished or or worse killed you're free you know um you ever been to an event, I know you have, where it's a fist-bumping, high-fiving. Have you ever hugged a stranger in those moments, you know what I'm talking about? It's like you just can't contain yourself. Hi, who are you? But hi, you know, this kind of moment. This is happening right here. And the effect was not just a moment in length. So powerful was the impact of this prayer meeting that had just let out, that Luke, who's the writer, the human author of these stories and details in Acts, um, gives us a view of the impact it had on the believers. That's what I want us to start with right here. So look on as I read, beginning in verse 32. This is after the building just shook. The prayer meeting was over, and all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. Now, in any generation, in any society, that's kind of an out-there idea. This is something going on. We got a hint of it in chapter 2, verses 42 and so on. But with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And notice this, circle these words, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all, he's about to tell you evidence, that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sale and put it at the apostles' feet so they could find needs and meet them. Wow. This is cool stuff. And then... Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, actually sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. I'm going to call what we're just now reading, giving from a happy heart. One of the effects of this, this, this house-shaking prayer meeting is that suddenly there's this dramatic giving 
outpouring. It was, it was a, a, a continuation of the, the irresistible spirit that had started on the day of Pentecost. Continuing still weeks later here in chapter 4. Uh, marked by, did you see how verse 32 begins? A great spirit of unity. That's what happens when people pray together. We, we get together. We don't just pray and leave. We do go our separate ways, but we, we go with a, a sewn together connection called unity. That's what's happening here. That's why verse 32, he calls attention to it. They were one in heart and mind. They, they didn't just think alike. Ready for this? One of heart means they felt alike. They were, we say, are, you, are we on the same page? But this is, do our hearts beat as one? It's deeper, isn't it? That's what Luke's wanting us to see. Can I just tell you something? That's here at this church. I know a lot of churches, and it pains me to tell you this, that have suffered greatly and immeasurably during this 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 difficult season that we appear to be uh, emerging from. Uh, some have closed their doors. Uh, we started with words like, there are the confident ones among us and there are the cautious ones among us. We are all one in this place. That's been stretched. That rubber band at times has been stretched, but never once did it break. Didn't break. Amen? That's, a, that's an amen moment. Okay, fist bump somebody near you, okay? It's a good thing. It's a cool. Um, so, so we have that. We, we have what they're describing here. And, and then he goes on right away to describe same verse. Look at the second half of verse 32. Uh, this generosity. They shared everything they had. There's this great spirit of generosity. That's why I would I, I couldn't wait to tell you the kind of generosity that has flowed from this church to people we will never meet in this life, most likely. But the Ukrainian brothers and sisters and others that are desperate are hearing that there are people pouring out their resources to meet a need that, that staggers the mind. That's here at this church. That's always been here at this church. Um, no possessiveness. I just love it. And then I want you to see this, and the, the rest of what we just read is a great spirit of grace. So there's, there's, there's an important connection I want you to see. It's, it's um, God's grace, that's why he says so in verse 33, God's grace was so powerful that it led to this kind of generosity. So it was God's grace that resulted in people giving freely. That got me thinking about something. Uh, uh, in Matthew 10, Jesus is sending out his disciples. If you want to go there, you can find out, sort of think of it as marching orders. Jesus sends them out, says, go and do these things. And then verse 8, he brings it down to a principle. Freely you have received, freely give. You know the song? Freely, freely you have received, freely, freely give, go 
that beautiful? And it's freely. That's the connection that we're, that we're being told about here. There's this outpouring of God's Holy Spirit and the grace that touched the lives of these people, shaking the building, and the result was a free giving uh, among the people. So this is, this is no, I chose my words very carefully. I do every week, but th- these words really fit. The, th- this, is the, the, this is giving with a happy heart. This is not, oh, I, I preach it. I'll add another zero. Okay. No way. Put away your wallet, your pen. No, 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 no. Do, do it with joy. Um, so strong was this spirit that some sold their assets, we've read about. Some um, brought the proceeds to the apostles and they met these needs. There's this uh, one name. We're told Joseph, verse 36, introduces him. First time. Um, he, he's actually a Levite who lived uh, in an island, we're told, in Cyprus, which is 250 miles west and north of Jerusalem. It's in the Mediterranean. You can pull up a map and take a look at it. He came from Cyprus, uh, but his generous gift had a powerful effect on the people. I'm calling it a big lift. Uh, and, and so much so that it, it's one of the reasons I think, my words, the apostles renamed him. You don't see Joseph mentioned again. You do see his new name, his nickname, Barnabas. And, and it's a big deal uh, because the word means, the name actually means son of encouragement. And, 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 and there's this spirit of yes coming from Barnabas. There's a spirit of let's do it coming from Barnabas. And it, and it shows in his life, in fact, I, I'm just teasing you now, but chapters 9 to 15 of Acts, we'll get there eventually. You're going to read Barnabas and Barnabas and Barnabas, and you'll see all kinds of ways that Barnabas brought about a big lift, a, an encouraging lift. And, and even, even in, a, in a tough moment when Paul and John Mark, they, they, they kind of got you know, sideways and Barnabas went with John Mark and lifted up this guy that could have been beaten and broken and like like sidelined. So Barnabas, big player here. In fact, uh, if you were to look at chapter 11, verse 24, you'll read these words about him. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and strong in faith. And I think we could add, from what we're reading here in chapter 4, he was also strong in giving. I have a question for you. Do you know of Barnabas? Um, I just got to have some fun about myself right now. Uh, because uh, hold out your note page if you have it with you. Um, I ask in question number 3 that I hope you'll take time to read and answer. Uh, have you known... Uh, I meant Barnabas, but it came out Barabbas. <laughs> Describe them. Are you a Barabbas? 
<laughs> now, if you're not laughing, you're wondering what's the joke. Well, Barabbas was, remember when they, um, they well, he was the guy that should have died. He had, and and uh, they said, no, 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 set him free, kill Jesus instead. So Barabbas was a convicted killer. He was a bad guy. And so when I'm saying, have you known a Barabbas? I hope the answer is no. <laughs> I almost use, I'm really relieved, I almost use the question, um, in what ways are you like Barabbas? <laughs> so anyway, it's just a little fun along. Hello. Hey, we're all human, right? Okay, so. But have you known a, I'm going to get it wrong, Barnabas? <laughs> um, I have. Um, more than a few. But I want to quickly tell you about one. I only have time to tell you about one. I was uh, in my previous ministry in Fullerton, and um, we, uh, the various pastors on the staff needed a place to go take their staff for a retreat. And uh, there's 22 pastors, so you can figure the need was pretty significant. And so um, I reached out to a, a couple in our church that were just, they, they, Debbie and I and the, these two just became like, and, and we were, we'd scratch our heads because they were older than us and we didn't see what they liked in us except maybe they're surrogate parents to us or something like that, you know. But I called one of them, I called them uh, when we had this need and I knew that they had uh, a couple of homes actually at Big Bear Lake, um, not too far a drive, a good spot to retreat for a few days and really get together on the same page as the staff. And I, I said, hey, is there any chance, oh yeah, 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 just just go and they they uh, he says you know get I'll get you the keys and um, go and enjoy it. I said well there's like eight of us or something I forget how many there were, and he says oh hey not a problem it's five bedrooms and four baths it should be just fine you know, and uh, it's vacant so we get there we have our retreat, and as I'm leaving I notice there's a for sale sign in front of it, and I thought oh wow he's selling this you know and all this so I get back and I wrote him and said thank you so much. Um, you know, return the keys and all that. We just had a great time. And I said, uh, boy, I sure wish we could get a home like that sometime as a church that, that could just serve a lot of needs like this and retreat needs and so on and so forth. So the day he got the letter, he called me and he said, how bad do you want the home? Okay, I'm, I'm young, I'm, I'm, so I'm not really quite catching his hint. I said, Humorously, well, I don't know, bad enough to come pick up the key. <laughs> and he says, okay, swing by today and I'll have the key and the paperwork ready. Uh, it's yours. The church can have it. <gasps> I, I, about, I didn't know what to do. Uh, I, uh, so I have my own personal retreat. At, no, I'm just kidding you. That's not the joke. Uh, it was just an amazing display of this man's generosity. There's one more footnote to that. I stood up uh, in the, at the pulpit of this church as well, and there are many thousands out there, and I was doing an update plea because I led college students. Debbie and I were heading to Eastern Europe. I've told you about that in Hungary. And we had a lot of first-generation Christians in our ministry. They were meeting Jesus like crazy. And they... Um, they said, yes, I want to go to Eastern Europe and share the gospel. And so we had a team mostly made up of very young Christians. 
and had a very small uh, list of people they could send a support letter to because we were going to be in Eastern Europe all summer. For four summers in a row we were. So how do you fund that? In the 80s, that was, uh, in 89, it was $90,000. I remember it was really close to the year. $90,000 to send this whole team all summer long to Eastern Europe to share the gospel. And I get done giving that announcement, and they had a little prayer, and I went and sat down in the front row, and Debbie was saved my seat, and behind me, I didn't realize it, was this couple. And I'm sitting there and, you know, kind of, you know, wondering, Lord, wonder what you're going to do. And suddenly, $100 bills start raining over my, I had a, a shirt uh, that I could see, I, I thought it was, uh, I, didn't, I couldn't tell what it was at first when I looked down on my lap and there's, there's a hundred dollar bill and another one and another one and several and several more. And this kept going. And I, of course, I'm, I'm like noticing it's the same person. And he met me after church. And he says, there, the need has been met. Send those students and tell them everybody you meet about Jesus Christ. That man and his wife were Barnabas. They were the ones that said, I'm not doing this. He was just having fun with me. And I, I'm like, wow. What is it? That's, a, that's got a zero. That's, I've never had one with two zeros on it in my wallet. You know? um, so that's, that's the stuff that was going on. Um, I want to read one more passage here before we... Um, not sure we're going to get to chapter 5, but it's okay. Would you flip to 2 Corinthians chapter um, chapter 9? I, I have you turn there because this is a really important point. I came to learn that this couple uh, were driven by God's priority when it comes to giving. And 2 Corinthians 9, just a couple of verses that I want you to hear. And I know these were in his heart. Remember this, verse 6, 2 Corinthians 9. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The word is, uh, that's where I get the word happy giver. It's, it's hilarious giver. It's it's have a blast. Do stuff like this couple did. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Drop down to verse 10. Now, he, God, who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness, and you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion, and, and through us your generosity will result in glory to God, thanksgiving to God. What a great picture. Um, exciting way to give folks, and an inspiring way to give. I get to tell you those stories because they're true. 
I love those words in verse 11, enriched so that you can be generous. Why do I have so much? If, if your answer doesn't include so I can be generous, you haven't gotten the full point of a purse or a wallet full of money. It's just the way God is. Uh, I think Nancy used to say, if God can get it through you, he'll get it to you. How about that? Not a bad way. As college students used to say, if God can raise the dead, he can raise the bread. Right? That's how we did it. It's true. So there we go. Um, so are you ready to go home? Let's just get out of here and do it, right? Do I have a few more minutes? Because I need us to hold up, unfortunately. Um, before we... Uh, Take in what happens next in chapter 5. If you don't know this principle, you really need to know it and never forget it. So I hope you're reaching for a pen right now. I'm going to say it. It's one sentence. And it's what the first five uh, uh, verses in chapter 5 are all about. First 11 verses in chapter 5. Here's the statement. What God is for, Satan is against. God is very much for everything I just described about that couple and any Barnabas in this room. He's very much for that. But what God is for, Satan is against. Watch me now. Remember this? If I had somebody get up here, Amor, you were over there and we were doing this, you'd really see it. What are we doing? Tug of war, right? God's, what God is for? Satan is against. Let me give you some examples. God is for us. Satan is against us. You're feeling beat down? It is not the living God. It's, it's the one that doesn't want you to believe that you mount to anything, much less someone Jesus would die for on a cross. Here's another. God is for truth. Satan is for a lie. That's right. More on that in a second. God is for forgiveness. Satan gets into things like condemnation and, and alienation. God is for purity and holiness. Satan is for impurity and unholiness. It goes on and on like this. God is the giver of life. And Satan steals, kills, and destroys. I'm not making that up. None of those things are made up. They're all from the Bible. So it's no surprise to clip together chapter 4 and chapter 5 that chapter 4, right on the heels of this beautiful picture of giving with a happy heart, dropping bills, that, that beautiful Joseph picture that we're told about here. Chapter 5 begins with a jolting story of a couple with twisted motives. And, 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 and it changed the entire mood of the first church from one of, of joyful generosity to Fear. Fear. 
Let's read it and then just talk about it a few moments and we'll be on our way. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property, just like Joseph. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? So what made you think of doing such a thing? You have not just lied to the room full of folks here that saw what you did, but you lied to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some men came, wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. About three hours passed, and then his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land that you sold? Yes, she says, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband three hours ago are at the door. And they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. <clears throat> then the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out, buried her beside her husband. And again, he repeats what verse 5 said already. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. We go from the joy of happy giving to the agony of deceit. You know, in almost every way, uh, I wish this sermon could end at chapter 4 in the story of Barnabas. What a, what a great story to end on. One worthy of emulating. Simple, joyful. Uh, repeatable, holy, Christ-honoring. Thanks, Joseph. Thank you, Barnabas. You gave me something to go on. Can we go home? And then this, which makes the conspiracy and the conduct of this couple even more appalling. People have just come from fist bumps and high fives and wow! No needs left. It's all been taken care of. Isn't God great? What? Um, so what did they do? Well, they sold a piece of property. We know that. But they pretended to give the full price, as Barnabas did. They pretended to give the full price of the sale of that property to the apostles to help meet needs. 
But that wasn't true. They had conspired um, to concoct a deceitful plan together. It wasn't just the husband and then she sort of incidentally and accidentally fell into it. No, no, no. We're told she had full knowledge. Um, I want you to see verse 2 because it's really important. Um, it says that they kept back part of the money. Um, <clears throat> it's to put aside for self. The reason I have that, that, that alone is not terribly profound, except that it's the same word used in the Septuagint, which is a fancy word for the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Hebrew. Okay, the Septuagint uses that ex same, same exact word here as was used in Joshua chapter 7 of a fellow named Achan. And Achan was part of the crew that went into Jericho chapter 6 and saw God do amazing things and was given specific instructions to destroy everything except for Rahab and her family. The city is still in rubble today, as God said. Uh, nothing was to be taken personally. It was dedicated to God. All of it that you found in Jericho were the instructions. Only Achan decides there's some pretty shiny stuff here. There's uh, some things I want to keep. And I think I'll take them back to my tent, my family's tent, and I'll hide them there under the mat or somehow if they're hidden. Those two parallel throughout this. Just as Achan had put aside, same word, that's what got my attention. I thought, you're kidding. I personally believe this was understood by the people hearing this. They knew about Achan. They knew a lot of similarities there. So we got Achan here who put aside some plunder from the town of Jericho. And, and um, we have evidence, not only in the Bible, but those of us that went to Israel a few years back, we know, we saw, we were there. Jericho is not this happy little city today. The, the ancient ruin is still an ancient ruin. And so too, Ananias and Sapphira had claimed to give it all, but they kept back some of the proceeds for themselves. Just Here's another parallel. Just as Achan, his sin impacted uh, Israel, and it happened just as Israel was, Joshua 7, just as Israel was moving in to conquer Canaan. So the, the, the nations knew it's, it's very young. So too, Ananias and Sapphira's sin happens here in the very early days, weeks of the, we keep calling it the first church. See the parallel there. Uh, just as Achan and his family uh, experienced immediate and ultimate judgment from God, they were stoned to death, all of them. So too, Ananias and Sapphira die a, a sudden and shocking death. By the way, I want you to see this lest you think there's some sleight of hand going on. There's an expression that's used in verse, <clears throat> verse 10 that 
Luke uses the word sudden. Um, let me find the place. Uh, at that moment in New International. It's the same word as, uh, as sudden, sudden death. I call your attention to it because it is um, always described as coming as a result of God's judgment in the Bible. Uh, in a, to put it in terms that we're reading here, in other words, God took away their breath. They didn't just have a stroke and go, oh my goodness, it's so embarrassing, I think I'm going to die. No. No, God said, your judgment is now, and I'm removing the breath of life from you now. So don't think God went, or, or Peter somehow called a couple of gangsters and beat them up and took them out, and we just don't get those details. No. This is all happening real time. And so, literally, when it says, um, at that moment, it's saying, at that precise moment when she answered the question, it was over. Uh, which explains one further comparison between Achan, back in Joshua, and Ananias and Sapphira. Just as God's judgment of Achan and his family left an indelible mark on the people. I mean, huge. They, in fact, uh, Achan and his family that um, that where they were stoned, they they renamed that location Valley of Trouble. It's remembered that way today, Valley of Trouble. What trouble? The story is then told. In the same way. Um, Ananiah and Sapphira death have, have a, an immediate and indelible impact on the people we're told twice they were full of fear great fear verse 5 and the chapter or this, this story ends great fear seized the whole church verse 11 so I'm just going to get out there a little bit further um, great uh, two, two people die for telling a lie. It's clear to me in reading this story that I'm likely not the only person that goes, wow. Uh, you know, the, the crime doesn't, the, the time doesn't fit the crime came to my mind when I'm reading it. And I force myself to be a little bit challenging um, and a little bit... Um, hesitant. I actually went so far to, as to think maybe this was just symbolic. Then I came across some insight from a theologian who actually uh, stated all of my objections. Because I, I think to myself, you know, why was this such a big, if this really happened, why was it such a big deal? I'm pretty sure I'm not the only guy wondering that. And so listen to these observations that affirm the fact that if you're kind of repulsed by that, how could God do that? You're not alone. Probably no account in Acts has provoked more wrath from critics than this one has. Writes the commentator um, that I consulted. Commentators have complained about the difficulty of accepting the death of both 
husband and wife under such circumstances and even question Peter's ethics is not in not giving them an opportunity to repent in not telling. Um, that would be something that would make sense to me. Peter, you messed up. God gave you another chance, right? Back to this man's words. Even more difficult for many is the way the story portrays Peter, who appears to be without compassion, the compassion or restraint of his Lord Jesus Christ, who treated even Judas more softly than this, though his sin was way more odorous. Many have felt it impossible for a leader of the early church to have shown such harshness over relatively slight offense like this and have doubted that the church would have even wanted to preserve such an account. So clearly, deep thinkers are going, I'm with you, Steve. This is a hard one to swallow. But it's here. And you know my bias. I believe it happened. And, and it leaves me with how can we take it to heart? What's, what's the takeaway for you and me? I thought of two. You probably have your own. Here's my two. The first one, deceit is a particularly devilish sin. Uh, Peter was, was quite pointed in stating that. He says so three different times. You're kidding me, my paraphrase. You're kidding me, verse 3. Uh, you've lied to the Holy Spirit, verse, verse 5. He says the same thing, or verse 4 rather. What made you think of doing such a thing? You didn't just lie to people. You lied to God. And then he repeats it again in verse 9. How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? It is sourced in Satan, whom Jesus described as not holding to any truth. That's where lies come from. Not holding to any truth. For there's no truth in him, Jesus said in John 8. So when he lies, he speaks of his native nature, his native language, for he is a liar. And he is, in fact, the father of lies. Remember what God is for? Satan is against. God is for truth, and Satan is, is against it. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira, they had contrived a lie. And the deceit that drove their decision uh, was an attempt, of all things, to look pious. Hey, notice us. Um, and there were lots of relationships impacted, even destroyed along the way. Not the least of which their relationship with God. Um, so I heard uh, someone humorously once say, uh, a lie is a terrible thing and an ever-present help in time of trouble. And um, I, I only tell you that uh, to lighten the mood a little bit. It's not true, is it? 
You know, um, it steals and it kills and it destroys because it's inspired by the one who does all those things. And, and, and you know, I could go on and on and illustrate it, but I want to leave you with a second takeaway. Um, by the way, white lies, you ever said one? You ever thought one? Well, let's stop it because they're, they're just as bad. In fact, in fact, if you're okay with a white lie, then you must be okay with just a little poison. Is that right? I mean, you know what I mean. I'm not calling anybody out. I'm just saying don't, we, we shouldn't do that kind of stuff. The final takeaway is trifling with God's holiness. I think this story teaches is very hazardous. Very hazardous. Sure, they lied to Peter, they lied to the disciples, but pointedly repeated words are, you lied to the Holy Spirit and God. Um, so the appropriate outcome, we're told twice, was fear. I have you uh, searching out the question of fear. How is fearing the Lord a good thing? And I hope, as I do each week that I make these uh, questions up, you'll take the time to explore that. The story is kept for our purpose, as all stories in the Bible are, and they're meant to shape different outcomes in our lives. So let's ask God to help us with that. We're going to sing a couple of songs and be on our way. So, Lord, we bow before you right now. There are people in this place that live your words where you say that you demand truth in the innermost being. There are also many Barnabases in this place. People who have said, Jesus, I'm going to keep my focus on you. I'm going to turn my eyes to you. And they've never stopped living that way. So, Lord, I pray that we would be shocked and jolted, but we would also be inspired by a message that contains both of them from your word, side by side. We really, we get to pick. We get to choose which path do we want to go down, the one that's populated by the Barnabases, that our giving would be generous, so generously so that people would be lifted and encouraged needs would be met thank you that this church is like that Lord we also have another choice to reject a very dark approach to possessions it's our choice there's no strong arm here there's just truth and I pray that as we go and live it out, that we would remember the tug of war. You want us to be like Barnabas. And the devil's happy to have more and more Ananias and Sapphira stories to tell. And God, I for one don't plan to let him tell that. Because I want to walk with you. And that starts by turning my eyes upon Jesus. Let's do that now in responding to him.